Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today's topic is type 1 diabetes. What are some of the biggest challenges facing us today when it comes to diagnosing and treating type 1 diabetes, and how can we meet those challenges? It's a big question, and thankfully, we have one of my favorite guests to help us address it. Joining me today is Dr. Earl Hirsch, Professor of Medicine and Diabetes Treatment and Teaching Chair at the UW Medicine Diabetes Institute at the University of Washington. With Davida Kruger of the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan, Dr. Hirsch co-chaired the Endocrine Society's Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Series. That program and this podcast episode were both made possible by unrestricted educational grants from Abbott Diabetes Care, Secure, Dexcom, Insulate, JDRF, Lilly USA, Mankind, Novo Nordisk, Prevention Bio, Vertex, and Tandem Diabetes. Thank you all so much. Now let's welcome in Dr. Earl Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch, thank you for joining me today. Good to be here, Aaron. So can you tell us a bit about the Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Series and why that program is so important? Yeah, this has been one of the highlights for me for the last 10 years that I have been co-chairing this. And I know it's been a highlight for many, many fellows who have participated in the program. And as a matter of fact, we need to go back and look and see how many fellows over the last 10 years have participated in the program, because I know it's one of the hottest tickets in town as far as hmm. fellows are concerned, not only in the U.S., but I think it's important to mention that we have hosted fellows prior to the Endocrine Society annual meeting. We have hosted fellows from around the world. And it's really been a lot of fun for me and for the last few years, Davida, who has been my co-chair. The program's important for a lot of reasons, but I think if I'm going to nail it down to one, I think many fellows, depending on where they train, don't get the experience and the teaching and especially the face-to-face management of type 1 diabetes that they would like to in their fellowship. And that's to be expected in that every single program can't be expert in every single aspect of endocrinology. And the way it works is that we try to bring in every fellow who wants to attend. And what fellows do is they write applications and they actually go ahead and write the reasons in their applications why they want to attend. We try to bring in everybody and if they don't get in one year, they will almost always get in the next year because so many people want to come. But what we do is we bring in experts from all of the disciplines that touch type 1 diabetes and the program has evolved over the years. As far as the face-to-face program is concerned, we bring in the experts, we have small groups, we have didactics. Most importantly, we allow the fellows to interact with the experts and mostly the senior physicians in a one-to-one situation, which is not just the typical didactic, but also comes out to be a social interaction. And that turns out to be very good spending 
a day with people where they are in a much more relaxed mood than maybe on a Zoom call, for Mm. example. The program has evolved over the years in that to get more people involved, and this happened because of the pandemic when everything went virtual, that we now have a hybrid program where we have micro-learning sessions where we have a host of topics that are related to type 1 diabetes that fellows can do both before and after the program. And the program itself now is an evening and then a full day after that. It used to be a bit longer and there was more face-to-face, but there was no virtual before because virtual programs didn't exist before. Right. And I think that the program will continue to evolve, but I think the bottom line is it gives fellows, most of whom are getting ready to go out into practice, a look at type 1 diabetes that they didn't have before and a much more in-depth look and a much more personal look. And my final comment about this question is that we have many faculty, but we also have people who are not physicians, but involved in type 1 diabetes, whether they are clinical nurse specialists, whether they are exercise specialists, whether they are nutritionists, and obviously physicians who live with type 1 diabetes themselves. For many of the fellows, taking the guard down of the way they usually see patients and the way they usually interact with both their attendings and with patients, it's really a wonderful interaction for the fellows. And I know that the fellows appreciate this type of interaction. And the way I know this is that every year I get emails and occasionally even phone calls from fellows thanking us for the program. It sounds like a very rich program. And for those of you who are listening, we will include a link to that program so you can read more about it and see what was covered. You'll see that in today's episode description. But what are some of the biggest challenges facing us today when it comes to diagnosing and treating type 1 diabetes? Well, let's start with diagnosis. Now, I am old enough so that when I was a medical student in the early 1980s, there was never a problem with diagnosis or rarely a problem. If you were childhood diagnosed, you were type 1. If you were diagnosed with diabetes as an adult, you were type 2. And that rarely, rarely, if ever, changed. Now, of course, for reasons that we don't entirely understand, we know that about 50% of type 1 patients are diagnosed in adulthood. And that has been a real game changer for when somebody comes in and what kind of diabetes do they have. I had a lady I saw in my clinic yesterday. She's had her diabetes for three years. She's in her early 50s. She has grown children. And she was diagnosed three years ago by her primary care physician with diabetes. She was started on metformin. She is a former marathon runner. She has a BMI just a tad under 20. And obviously, everybody knows how this story will end because we see this all the time. She had misdiagnosed diabetes. Her diabetes was type 1. She had antibodies. But I don't think the word has gotten out that we see so much type 1 diabetes in adults. Somebody asked me literally just yesterday, what is the oldest 
patient I've seen with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes. And this goes back to the 1990s. I saw a man come in with ketoacidosis, classic type 1 diabetes. He was 92 years old. And we don't understand. We have a lot of theories, but we don't really understand this. I should also point out that there is another entity that we talked about in the conference that we see more in adult onset type 1 diabetes, and that's antibody negative type 1 diabetes. And it's a topic that's of great interest to ours. It's a topic that we are studying in an NIH-funded study called Radiant, which is rare and atypical forms of diabetes. But antibody negative type 1 diabetes is not rare and atypical. It's actually very common. So there are all of these rabbit holes we are going down and we are learning about diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, and it actually is more challenging. Now, treating of type 1 diabetes is even more challenging when we look at what's happened over the last five years or even in the last three years. And that has to do with the implosion of diabetes technology. And this is a major focus of our fellows program that we do with the Endocrine Society. In our very large diabetes clinic here at the University of Washington, over 95% of our type 1 patients are now using sensors. That's higher than the U.S. in general, but the use of sensors in the U.S. in type 1 diabetes is increasing, and we know every year. But even more important than the increase in sensor use and what is somewhat challenging to many endocrinologists has been the explosion of automated insulin delivery systems. This has revolutionized type 1 diabetes, and I would say in the last three or four years. For us, it really exploded during the pandemic because everything sort of happened at the same time with the introduction of the tandem pump and soon after that, the introduction of Omnipod 5 and the fact that we were forced to learn how to do everything virtually and patients had the time and we did it. The reason why it's a challenge is that onboarding patients is a challenge. We use our industry partners now to help with that. And I should say 10, 20 years ago, we didn't use our industry partners. Now we have to because of the demand. And that's turned out actually to be a very good thing. But I think from the endocrinologist's point of view, as these patients now are on their technology and specifically their automated insulin delivery system, how the patient flow works and how the physician helps manage that patient with now four different AID systems on the market. I should say four companies. There's actually more than four when you look at the earlier versions of some of these systems. And it's challenging because ironically at an endocrine society CEU that was here in Seattle, I lose track of time. It was less than 10 years ago, but I asked in a non-scientific survey, 200 endocrinologists how much time they had with patients. And as it turned out, I would say three quarters of them had less than 20 minutes. And the problem with this, especially when you're learning how to help patients, doing all of this and all of the other things we do with blood pressure and lipids and all the other screenings that we do, 
psychosocial issues, which, by the way, is a big part of the fellows program. You can't do this in 15 or 20 minutes. You can't do it effectively, especially if you are going through the download with the patient. Each of these systems have a different download. The physician needs to know or the clinician needs to know how to look at each download because they all work differently under the hood and how you adjust things and work with the patient depends on the device. And the fact that we now have four devices and some are easier than others, but with all of them, you need to look at the data and just looking at the data, let alone really understanding how to help the patient the most. Not all endocrinologists can do that, but one of the things we do focus on in our program is going through the devices that are currently available, how to do it efficiently, how to read it, how to help the patient using a lot of case examples. But with all of that being said, what I can tell you is whether it's one year or two years or at the most three years ahead, everything that we do will be outdated because this is all changing so quickly. Mm. And I think the very quick evolution of what we are doing with diabetes technology in particular, which is really relevant for the clinical endocrinologist in practice, more relevant, for example, than what we are doing now for screening pediatric children for preclinical type 1 diabetes and providing a CD3 inhibitor to plizumab, for example, for slowing down the autoimmune process. We talk about that, but that's brand new. That's going to explode. And that's not going to hit every endocrinologist now in practice, like dealing with all of this technology. Hmm. And so it's a huge, huge challenge. And I see the challenges in the future, maybe even more so as this topic of multiple drugs potentially for postponing the beta cell death that we see with a new onset type 1 diabetes, as that whole science also progresses, it's a very exciting time, but it's going to be another major challenge, not only for how do you do this in a clinical situation scaled up so everybody can do it, but how do we deal with the other challenge of all of type 1 diabetes, which is always the elephant in the room, and that is reimbursement and how to do all of this whether we are talking about an automated insulin device or simply talking about using a smart pen with a CGM or whether we are talking about delaying the onset of full clinical type 1 diabetes, how do we do this when we are also at the same time having to deal with pre-authorizations, working with insurance companies, often appeals? How do we do this efficiently if the clinician has to see between 15 and 20 people a day. And we get into this a bit anyway, but it's these parts of type 1 diabetes that are challenging. Well, I think it's safe to say that there's plenty of challenges, right? There's a lot. And we talked a lot about technology there. One technology that's been around for a little while that most folks know about at this point is CGMs. And the program talked a little bit about this, but we know that CGMs can be very helpful. But where are there still challenges with leveraging CGM use into effective treatment strategies and how should we navigate those challenges? I think the number one issue by far, now that most people do have access, 
And access is still a problem. I don't want to minimize the fact that there are still many people, not just in the U.S., but especially since we have all of these international fellows, there are many places around the world that have minimal access to CGM. But for those people who do have access, the biggest challenge that I have learned from the fellows is the fact that when they go into their practices, they don't have good access for looking at the data. They don't have an infrastructure set up that they can look at the download with the patient. They can actually bill for the interpretation of the download with the patient, but they don't have a good workflow for that. And what I am embarrassed to say a little bit is the fact that many fellows tell me when they are interviewing for their practices, the only way that they are able to work with the downloads is to look at the app on the phone with the patients. Otherwise, they can't even see the download. And unfortunately, what I've learned, and this has not completely gone away, is there are many practices where it's just not part of the patient flow at all. And that's simply because it's time-consuming on the one hand, even though you can bill for it. But physicians in general are incentivized not by looking at the CGM download, but by measuring the A1C and what that A1C level is. And this is just some of the ugly truths about our medical system, not about our fellows, not about our colleagues, but some of the dysfunctionality about our system. And so we really try to focus on the fact that the fellows, both in their fellowship and then when they get out into their practices, assuming they're going into practice, which most of them are, by the way, that's where most of our fellows who do our program end up, not in an academic setting, is they need to look at the data. And that's the only way to really help their patients, by the way, whether they have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. One thing that you talked about a little bit earlier was some of the psychosocial considerations. I want to come back to that for a moment because the program addressed the importance of evaluating individuals with type 1 diabetes for signs of depression. Why is that so important and how can that evaluation be effectively done? Yeah, it's a really important point, Aaron. I was fortunate to be involved in a study it's really 30 years ago, we did a multi-center trial looking at treating depression with a drug at the time that was not generic, it was new, and it wasn't Prozac, it was actually non-generic Zoloft. And it was a multi-center trial, and it was placebo-controlled. And guess what? Not surprisingly, those patients who had their depression treated had significantly improved hemoglobin A1C levels. Now, that was almost 30 years ago. And now, of course, we know that it's not just classic depression, it's not just anxiety, but it's much more complicated than that. And the need for psychologists, behavioral therapists, cognitive behavioral therapy, and certainly when indicated medication, um, it's, it's important. One of the things that I learned many years ago is that trying to improve diabetes control while somebody has major depression, it's almost a waste of time. You need to focus on the depression first. But we do more than that in our program in that we look at the real-life stressors 
We look at certainly classical depression, but we look at all of this throughout the life cycle in the pediatric age group, all the way to the geriatric age group. And all the fellows have an opportunity to learn about this. Yeah, we spend a little bit of time talking about technology and some of the exciting new innovations that are happening. When you think about innovations in the field of type 1 diabetes treatment, you know, what are some of those emerging therapies that are really shaping and transforming how treatment is done? Well, I think right now, if you would ask most of my colleagues, the thing that right now we see that has really revolutionized diabetes therapy has been the automated insulin delivery systems. We now have four of them, and that doesn't even include the DIY pump systems that we still have a few patients doing. But that's here and now. I think moving to the future, what's really received a lot of excitement in the last year has been stem cell therapy, especially if we can understand how to do this without immunosuppression, and that's a big if. I think that is going to be revolutionary. I think the fact that we just have seen some teplizumab data presented with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes, I think that is potentially going to be revolutionary, especially if we use different mechanisms of action in combination therapy. Here in Seattle, I am working with my colleague, Mike Schwartz, because we hope in the near future we can look at CNS leptin. If you inject leptin directly into the brain of a streptozytosin mouse with type 1 diabetes who makes no insulin, if you put leptin into that brain, the blood glucose levels normalize. Mm. And we hope to do that in C-peptide negative type 1 patients in the near future. Wow. I mean, there are a lot of very interesting things. And the leptin story, we, of course, will use metroleptin. We won't use regular leptin. But I think as we look at all of these very, very exciting tools, which potentially could be transformational, it's my opinion in the next few years that one or more than one of these will stick and we'll figure out how to make it work. In the meantime, what I think we need to do is do a better job with the tools that we have. We have too many patients with type 1 diabetes, and I should say with all diabetes, with poor control. We have too many patients receiving intra-retinal injections or laser therapy for retinopathy. We still have too many people requiring dialysis or transplant. Mm -hmm. We have too much severe hypoglycemia when we look at the country as a whole. I also want to point out that I do believe that when we look at technology, that we are going to be able to, in the future, use SGLT2 inhibitors in type 1 diabetes, not so much for glucose control, although I think that's important, but I do believe with appropriate mitigation of ketoacidosis, we will be able to use SGLT2 inhibitors, especially with continuous ketone monitoring for the treatment of diabetic kidney disease. The FLOW study for type 2 diabetes with semaglutide, we know that the drug works even though we don't have the data, the specific data in front of us. I believe we'll be able to use GLP-1 receptor agonists for type 1 diabetes and diabetic kidney disease. And I say that because 
within the next year, studies in type 1 diabetes, both with GLP-1 and SGLT-2 inhibitors with diabetic kidney disease will be started. And the hope is in the years following that, these drugs will actually get FDA approval for that indication. And so I look at all of this as a package and I look at what is there to be excited about in type 1 diabetes. And Aaron, it's safe to say there is a lot, but by the same token, for all of those people now who have type 1 diabetes, the key is, is to give them all of the evidence-based therapies we know of now so everybody can be as healthy as possible when all of these things happen. And at least in my clinic, what has been a real joy for me is another topic that came up with the fellows, and that's the topic of geriatric type 1 diabetes. Now, 30, 40 years ago, that was a population that really didn't exist. And today, it's a huge population, but it's not a population that has had much study yet because it didn't exist in the past. You know, we just had our 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin, and now we have this new wonderful situation that is geriatric type 1 diabetes. And the whole issue of what happens when they need assisted living, where they need nursing home care, or all of the things that happen with usual geriatrics. I actually had a patient literally yesterday where my patient with type 1 diabetes is the caregiver for his spouse who is getting ready for hospice care. And yet the type 1 patient is the one who is the caregiver. These are situations that would have been unheard of a few decades ago. One thing you mentioned there was evidence-based therapies. And when people think about that, they think about practice guidelines. When we look at the last few years, how have we seen new knowledge and updates to practice guidelines improve care? When I was an endocrine fellow, there were no practice guidelines because there was no evidence. Let's remember, the first evidence that glucose control made a difference was in 1993 when the DCCT was reported in Las Vegas at the ADA scientific sessions. Now, you know, that was 30 years ago. After then, the evidence has just exploded. But I need to point out that what has always been disappointing to me and what we are now trying to do, starting with the fellows, is that as soon as the evidence is published, especially the good evidence, we try to bring that in so that the evidence can be translated into clinical practice right away. Now, the DCCT is an interesting example. At least here in Seattle, where I practice, we didn't really see the explosion of intensive insulin therapy the way we did it in the DCCT. And I can say we because the University of Washington was part of the DCCT, but I didn't really see that in clinical practice until 2001. It took eight years, and the reason why is that that was the year Glargine came out, the insulin lantus, and it forced physicians to have type 1 patients who didn't make insulin to take lunchtime insulin because otherwise they were using NPH to cover the lunch. It didn't work. And so once you have the evidence, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to follow suit right away. And that's the problem. And that's why I think 
everything the endocrine society is doing with all of the educational programs that the endocrine society is doing including the fellows program where we do focus on the psychosocial issues the technology the evidence for how do we treat and prevent and even screen for diabetes related complications all of that is critical and doing this translation more quickly than we did 30 years ago needs to be all of our goals. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about innovations, technology in the future and while we've seen many advances in the field, some things like exercise are just as important as they've always been. What are some effective strategies for exercise and minimizing hypoglycemia for individuals with type 1 diabetes? Fortunately, the expert of the world in this, my good friend Mike Riddell from Canada, he has studied this he has published about this and he has been part of our fellows program for many years in fact one year he gave the keynote about his personal story on how with his own type 1 diabetes he became so interested in this this is something that we have to focus on because even with our best technology everybody struggles with this the other part about this topic is that what works for one patient doesn't work for everybody and there are a lot of reasons for this but the fundamental number one thing to keep in mind whether one is on multiple injections or on one of the automated insulin delivery systems is you don't want to exercise when there are high insulin levels in the blood you don't want to exercise during peaking insulin because in that situation hypoglycemia becomes inevitable and so we focus on the different strategies to minimize this and mike is brilliant with this topic and in my view that is always one of the highlights of the program dealing with a topic that many of the fellows haven't heard dealt with in such a formal way for their entire fellowship i always like to end these interviews with a look at the future and we've already spent a good amount of time talking about the future the type 1 diabetes fellows program has been around for 10 years so i thought it'd be nice to think about the next 10 years what are some advances that you hope to see in care for individuals with type 1 diabetes we've talked about automated insulin delivery we talked about stem cells we talked about preserving beta cell function we haven't talked about what can we do to preserve the skin sites with insulin pump therapy we published a study funded by the original funder of the T1D fellowship program the Helmsley Charitable Trust and we published a study in September of this year in diabetes care where we literally looked under the skin with skin biopsies to see what was going on and we saw some things we didn't expect the most interesting of which was eosinophils throughout the skin and i am hopeful in the next 10 years we are going to figure out how can we keep the skin sites without the eosinophils without the inflammation without the fibrosis without the fat necrosis that we saw i think over the next 10 years that is an area that i am hopeful we become much smarter about now obviously if metroleptin works or stem cells work and we can get that to the point that everybody with type 1 diabetes has access to that that would be great but realistically even if we go back with insulin and when insulin was discovered 
not everybody had access to it in the first 10 years. And even today, when we go around the world, and even still somewhat in the US, not everybody has perfect access to insulin. And so if I get to a more practical level, a more pragmatic level to end this, Aaron, one of the things that is just a fact that we have to acknowledge is the fact that 50% of people in the United States with type 1 diabetes on the adult side, I'm not going to talk about pediatric, are cared for by primary care physicians, not our endocrine fellows who went through our T1D endocrine fellowship program, not by endocrinologists in practice, but by primary care physicians who maybe took care of a few type 1s in the hospital during their fellowship, but otherwise have had no type 1 diabetes update. And I think realistically, if I look over the next 10 years, we need to do a better job. And I say we, not just the endocrine society, not just the JDRF, not the ADA, not the Helmsley Trust, but all of us together need to work with our primary care colleagues to improve the care for type 1 diabetes in the United States, specifically focusing on our primary care colleagues. In 2020, there was a paper published by my colleague at UCSD, Jeremy Pettis. He was the first author looking at the Optum Rx database and comparing primary care physicians to endocrinologists starting in adolescence and going up to the early 70s in age. And what he found is that at every single age, the primary care physicians had a 1% higher hemoglobin A1C, higher amounts of hospitalizations for ketoacidosis and hypoglycemia, and endocrinologists as a whole, myself included, I don't think we put enough effort into thinking about these patients who, for many reasons, don't have access to endocrinology cares of excellence. And in the next 10 years, I hope we do a better job with that. You are out of time. I always enjoy these opportunities to speak with you, Dr. Hirsch. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You bet. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the Type 1 Diabetes series from Dr. Hirsch. If you'd like to learn more about the program, we're including a link in today's episode description. We'll be back soon with another episode. As always, if there's something you'd like to hear more about on the podcast, let me know by emailing me at podcast at endocrine.org. That's podcast at endocrine.org. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.